Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Dan is bringing you a teaching, so head over to CrosswalkPhoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Dan. Hopefully, after every message we have in this series, Christ Promises in Revelation, CPR, that you will have a promise from Christ, maybe a promise that you already knew, maybe one that you had never heard before, but that you leave here today with a promise of Christ that is firmly on your heart, that gives you encouragement for the rest of your day, the week, and ultimately for the rest of your life. That is what, just so you know, what I am trying to do today. We are going to focus on a promise of Christ. And as we do that, we're going to do that by looking at different congregations. There were seven different churches. And and this one specifically, the name of the city was Pergamum, which you don't necessarily need to remember. But Pergamum was, was the city. And as you see from the title, Pergamum was known as the compromising church. They compromised. And that was not a good thing. And when we think of the compromising church, what I want you to think of when, when we think of compromising, I want you to think about how you compromise in your life. Not, not in a good way. There can be a compromise if my wife and I want to go out to eat and, and we want to go to different places. I'll compromise and, and, and we'll go to wherever she wants to go. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's even good, I guess. But then there's compromising that is bad. And, and compromising that is bad is when you, you do things that are are wrong, where you, you give in to wrong ideals. And maybe an example of that, we're in this political season that's going to end, thankfully, soon. And I believe that there are people who want to get into politics for the right reason. I do. I, I believe there are people who look at their community and they say, I want to make a difference in my community and I want to help people in my community and I want to help people in my city and I want to help people in my state and I want to help people in my country. And, and that's why I want to be uh, in government so that I can go and I can serve the people. And that would be the idea of, of having ideals, okay, that, that I want to do something good and that when you talk to them, you believe them because it is true. But it seems somewhere along the line that when you start with those ideals and they say things like, well, we're not going to take any money from special interest groups or we are not going to listen to lobbyists and and we are not going to just vote the party line. We are going to do what what we feel is best for our people and, and what's best for our community and our country. That somewhere along the line, it seems like every politician, as they're in government longer and longer, maybe start to drift farther and farther away from their ideals. And the next thing you know, in their campaign, even though they try to distance themselves from the attack ads, even though they said they were never going to say anything negative about their opponent and simply stick to what it is that they are trying to promote, that they do, and, and one day they, they wake up two years, four years, ten years down the road, whatever it is, and realize that everything that they originally came in to fight against, they have now become. That, according to our theme, is what I would call a compromising politician. 
But I'm guessing we don't have a lot of politicians in the room, not a lot of people running for government. And so my question to you is, how, how do you compromise? And, and as I was thinking about this, I, I thought about myself in a way that I did this. And, and it happened back when I was actually going to the seminary. And what happened is this, is when I was in, in grade school, there were my parents and other people at my church encouraged me in ministry. That they said, Dan, we think you have gifts for ministry that would translate well in ministry. And we think you should, even at a young age, think about being a pastor. And I was like, all right, that'd be kind of cool, I guess. And so I went away to a prep school when I was 14 years old. And after four years of high school, I went to four years of college. And it was great. A lot of the people I went to school with were the same guys for eight years. But then something happened when I went to the seminary. And I think what happened is the realization hit that in two years from that time when I started that I would be going away from all of these friends of mine and I was going to be alone somewhere doing this ministry. And I started thinking about, was I becoming a pastor or studying to become a pastor because my mom wanted me to? Because people at my home church wanted me to? Or was this something that I really wanted to prepare to do? And what happened is, I, I guess I would probably say that I started to self-medicate a little bit. Uh, stayed up later than I definitely should have. Uh, as I would stay up late, maybe go out to the bar. Uh, and then when I would get back at bar time, uh, not do my homework. And, and then I started going to class unprepared. And then I thought, that's really hypocritical to, stop, to go to class unprepared. So then I stopped going to classes uh, when I wasn't prepared, and I felt a lot better. And, and what happened was I, I missed more school in one quarter of my first year at seminary than I had missed in the previous eight years combined. And, and as I was going through this and I was struggling with it, one day I decided, I, I loaded most of my things into my car, and I drove about an hour and a half away to, to where I was born, my hometown, where my brothers lived and had a plumbing shop. And I just showed up at 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, a little bit before that, because that's when they started work. And I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe plumbing is more up my alley. Maybe that's what I should do is just go back there. Maybe that's a better option. And, and so as we were there, my, my dad happened to come into the shop and he knew that I wasn't where I was supposed to be and didn't know exactly what was going on. And, and a number of things happened that day. One of them was my brother offered me a job, said, you know what, if you don't want to go to the seminary, if, if you want to stay here and, and work with us in, in the family business, you are welcome to do that. And gave me an offer that was much more than I was going to ever start as pastor. But then my dad had a conversation with me. And one of the things he just said to me, it wasn't a long conversation. He just said, Dan, if, if you're thinking about being a pastor, don't do God any favors, okay? So just so we're clear, his ministry will go on without you. God can live without you as a pastor. 
And, and as he said that, I, it, it was interesting because the next thing he said was, so if you're going to go to school, go to school. But if you're not going to go to school, don't. And what he made me realize is that what I had done is I had compromised myself. The things that he had taught me, the way that I had been taught to, if you're going to do something, do it right. But this idea of, of kind of going, kind of not going, you, you've compromised everything that, that you want to stand for. And so what was interesting about that day was now I had a choice. And the choice was, what do I want to do? How do I want to serve the Lord in my life? And, and the idea was that stop the compromising. Stop the acting in a way that you would be preaching against. And, and go back to the question of why. Why do you want to do this? And, and I got back to that, which was, I knew that Jesus loved me very much. And it, and it comforted me in my life in a very real way. And... I also believe that I have gifts of communication and I want to share that with other people. And that day changed. It did. It, it changed. That, that why changed my, my approach. And from that moment, I haven't looked back. But how about you? What, what is that area in your life where maybe you have become compromising? Maybe it's, maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe it's a marriage where the day you were married, you said, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to commit to this, and I am going to love and honor and cherish my spouse. And with all your heart, you believe that. And now today, you say, how did I, I wind up where I'm at? How did we wind up here where we feel like we're each other's enemies, that we, we were after each other all the time? And everything I didn't want to be as a spouse, I feel like that's what I've become. Maybe it's that way in business where you wanted to, to have this job and you wanted to do it and you found it fulfilling. But, but over time, you've become lazy or, or you've made concessions and you look at the person you are in the mirror and you say, I don't like it. But even more than that, the church in Pergamum was a compromising church. And what had happened is everything that they had wanted in their relationship with God when they started, when they came to know Jesus as their Savior and said, we are going to follow him. We know that, that he is the God who saves us. He is the God who is with us. He is the God that, that comforts us. One day they woke up and, and they realized that they were everything that God did not want them to be. I thank God in my life that I had my dad on that day to talk to me, to be straight with me and to tell me what he saw. But with the church in Pergamum, they had something else. They had Christ. They had Christ who came to them and said, this is where you're at. And at some point, you need to understand it and, and, and decide who you want to be. And that is why this is a message that's so valuable for us today to make sure that we are not compromising our Christian faith. Let's go to, to Revelation chapter 2, beginning with the 12th verse, looking at the church of Pergamum. And where we're going to start is at the beginning with the relationship with God and how strong it was. And it was strong. This is what Jesus says. To the angel or to the pastor of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, 
where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Wow. That's where they live. They lived where Satan lived. They lived in in Satan's backyard. And as a matter of fact, let's do the fill-in right away. Despite living in Satan's backyard, the Christians at Pergamum remained true to Jesus. Despite living in Satan's backyard, the Christians at Pergamum remained true to Jesus. This is interesting. What did he mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, you are living in Satan's backyard, that that you are living where Satan lives? And one of the things that, that, that people have looked at it as they've researched the city of Pergamum was Pergamum happened to be the home of the temple of Zeus. And I have a picture of what this looks like. This is the actual temple from, from the time uh, that this was written. So it's nearly 2,000 years old. And what's interesting about this is this, this temple was in Pergamum. And early in the 1900s, this temple was taken stone by stone. It was taken apart and brought by Adolf Hitler to Berlin. And it now sits in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. And this is known as the seat of Satan. And and what's interesting about that is it's called the seat of Satan because everything that, that happened from that temple of Zeus and that worship of him was so bad. And it was a place that, that, as you do a word study of that idea that you live where Satan lives, that that the word is almost like we would use the word lazy boy or where Satan is comfortable, where Satan, Satan's living room, where he kicks back and he feels very comfortable, that's where they lived. And, and so as Jesus was writing that, he, he was telling them, I know the unique challenges you face in your faith because Satan is always in your face. The, the evils of the world. No place was more evil than Pergamum. And, and so these people had that in their face all the day, but they said no. We are not going to follow Satan. We are not going to follow Zeus. We are not going to follow these religions that we recognize and we know are false. Instead, in the face of persecution, they said we are going to follow Jesus and follow him only. Another part of this was that it says, as in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Now, Antipas was probably someone that we would call the pastor of the church in Pergamum. And what happened with him is, is, we don't know exactly, but it seems like Antipas might have been a doctor. And as a doctor, also in Pergamum, there, there were many doctors there, and it, and it was a place, they had all these weird customs that they would have the people sleep in a, a different temple with a bunch of snakes, and that if the snakes went over top of you in your sleep, that you would live and you would get better. It was all kind of crazy stuff like that. And Antipas came to faith in Jesus, and he said, this is craziness. This is absolute craziness. That is, that is not true. 
And so what happened is you, you had this issue where he had been a former doctor and a former doctor who had prescribed this was now saying it wasn't any good. And so what they told him he had to do, Antipas, was he had to bow to Caesar and, and not only give his allegiance, but also his belief in him as God. And Antipas said, no way, it's not going to happen. And then what they did with him was this, is this is known as a brazen bull. And what they did is they not only put him to death, but the way they put him to death was that on the back side of that, there would have been an opening, like an oven door. And they put Anipus in there, and they would have tied him up, and they tie him up in such a way that his head would have gone into the head of the bull. And then they would have started a fire underneath it. And, and what would happen is that as the, the screams of the person inside would come out, that it would seem like the bull was coming to life. And, and the people would respond in, in delight as they, they knew that this person, this guilty person, had died. And that is how Antipas was put to death. Again, remember what we're talking about. We're talking about the people of Pergamum, their dedication to Christ, and, and how they stood firm to the faith in, in the face of opposition. This is what they faced. And they said, no, we are not going to bow our knee to anyone else. We are going to follow Jesus and him only, despite death, despite all of these things that can happen to us. They sound like pretty good people to me. But yet, this is what Jesus warns them about, about being a compromising church. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Okay, there's two guys, Balaam and Balak. Balak ends in a K. Remember that because Balak is the king. Okay, Balak is a king. Balaam is a prophet. And, and what happened was the children of Israel were, had come out of Egypt and they were very strong. And they were um, mowing over people and nations on their way to the promised land. And so Balak, the king, said to Balaam, the prophet, I need your help. I think if I go up to them just to fight that they're going to beat us. So I want you to, to fight them on another level. I want you to go and prophesy curses about them. I want you to go in, in the name of, of God and, and curse them and tell them they are going to lose and they are going to go down. And, and Moab, which is where he was from, is going to have victory over them. To make a long story short, every time Balaam, the prophet, opened his mouth to curse Israel, only praises came out. That, and, and then he, so he wrote this in, or said this in Numbers 22, verse 18. But Balaam answered them, and this was the people that came from Balak, Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. My hands are tied, Balak. I would love to take all your money, and I would love to curse the children of Israel and say all kinds of bad things about them, but I can't. I am bound by what God tells me. And as a matter of fact, I can try to say these things, but I can't. And so we, we see another situation where the children of Israel were, were guarded and protected by their God. But then Balaam came up with a different plan. 
And he said this to Balak, instead of doing that, here's what I want you to do. The best way to attack the children of Israel is, is not with your armies. It's not with these curses from God. But it's with the young ladies of your country. If you want a weakness, the, the weakness of the children of Israel, it's through their men and their desire for your women. And that is why in Numbers 31, verse 16, when it says, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. That was the plan. They are so good at frontal attacks that that there's no way you're going to beat them. So the way to go at them is not with a head-on fight. It's not with, you need to worship Satan, you need to bow to to the throne of Satan, but rather come in from a side door with sexual type sins. And so the question I have is this, are you a person who can face the frontal attacks of Satan only to fall to subtle temptation? Are you one who can face these frontal attacks, but when they, when they come from a side area that, that you, you are kind of thrown for a loop? I'll give you an example of this. I'll give you an example. Right now, imagine that our country, that the government made a law, you cannot read your Bible anymore. Bible reading from this point forward is banned. Well, there would be a huge outcry, right? You can't do that. You can't take away our Bibles. We would go home and try to find our Bibles. And and then we would, once we had them, we would say, you can't take these away from me. Even though if they had taken them away from you six months earlier, you wouldn't have even noticed because you don't use them. So do you see my point? If they told you you can't read the Bible, we would prove them wrong by reading it. But now that we're free to read it at any time, we don't. That's a side door attack. We could go on and on with with this idea of legislation of morality or even legislation of immorality. But the truth is, is that very often Satan does not try to get us to bow to him and say, I'm a Satan worshiper. He does it in much more subtle ways. A little bit later in Revelation 2 verse 15, after talking about this whole Balaam incident, He says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. So now you can go look on that on Wikipedia and find out what a Nicolaitan is and what they taught. But basically, the the teaching of the Nicolaitans was this, is that we believe in, in God, but we also believe that because God made us, and because we have desires that we want to fulfill and desires we want to gratify, it's okay if we do whatever we want. And so in the blank, the way that I would say this with the Nicolaitans is this, is that there was no religious compromise. And the way that I say that is, I won't worship Satan. So these frontal attacks of saying there's a different God or you have to worship a different God, they would say, no way, we're not having anything to do with that. But there was moral compromise. And moral compromise said, I will live however I want to. 
Don't turn the page yet. (laughs) And the reason why is that this is what you need to understand. It's so subtle. It's so subtle, but you need to understand this. That you can write in religious compromise, write Satan worship. Write that next to it. But next to moral compromise, write self-worship. Here's the thing. Whether it's Satan worship or self-worship, it's still not Christ worship. And, and the warning is where this leads. And it's away from God. And, and that's why as Jesus was writing to this church in Pergamum that he's telling them, oh my goodness, the things that you have suffered, the things that you were willing to suffer for my name. And now what's happened is, is that you, you've got this attack from behind or from the side. And it's like you don't see it. You don't realize that even though you're technically not worshiping Satan, that you've fallen in, into your own self-worship and it still leads you away from me. On the next page, you can turn now, is, and this is from the book of Galatians, gives you a picture into what self-worship looks like. The acts of the flesh, the acts of self-worship are obvious. The first and foremost is sexual immorality. I do not follow God's morals with my maleness or femaleness. Meaning, however, whatever my appetite is, in order to fulfill myself sexually, I think I should be able to do it. Number one on the list. And I would say probably in our country, probably in our congregation, this is the first and foremost one that is there. That, that I believe I should do whatever I want to fulfill myself sexually. The list goes on. Impurity. Debauchery. Debauchery is like a catch-all word. That's like doing whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good. The next one is idolatry. Idolatry is having something in your heart that's more important to you than God. Witchcraft. Hatred. Discord. Jealousy. Fits of rage. Don't get your way, you're all mad. Ambition isn't wrong, but selfish ambition is. That is so much self-worship. What do I want to do with my life? Dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Holy moly. That, that as you look at this for the church in Pergamum, for the church in Galatia, for the church in Levine, for the church in South Phoenix, the same is true. That, that this idea that if we follow Jesus and we can do then whatever we want, that, that, that saying I believe in Jesus gives me a license to sin however I want in my own life, you are in for a rude awakening. What you are doing is you are being a compromising Christian. That, that you are professing one thing but living another. And that when God says it, he says that, that if you are compromising in that way, you've compromised your relationship with him. And 
and hopefully someone who loves you enough. Like my dad was to me when I was living in a way that was shameful to myself, to our seminary, and and to my family. That he told me that because he loved me. And he knew that I needed to change. And so in Revelation 2 verse 16, Jesus tells the pastor to tell the people, repent therefore. Otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In the blank you can write, God calls us to repent of our sin and turn from it. I'm not asking you if you have gone from religious compromise to moral compromise, I'm telling you that that is the way the sinful nature inside of you is wired. That I'm telling you that that this is something that you don't just conquer. It's not just something where, oh, okay, now I got it figured out. But this is a battle. The battle for your heart is a fight that is fought every single day. So don't try to do it without the promises that God offers you. And this is what he does. This is what he says in Revelation 2 verse 17. To help us now as we repent this, as we admit it. Lord, I have sinned against you. Lord, my heart has been turned by subtle things in my life. And my direction has gone from you to self. That this is, this is what he says. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Wonderful. I get it. Hidden man in a rock. Thanks, God. Just what I needed for this fight that I'm, I'm going through in, in my daily life. But as we look at this, we need to understand exactly what he's promising us. And so in the blank, the first one is hidden manna which is eternal life. That's what he's promising you, hidden manna. Remember, manna was, was the, 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 the bread. They, manna literally means, what is it? And it was for the children of Israel as they were going through the wilderness, that manna came down because they didn't have any food. And so when the first time they saw it, they said, what is it? And it was the day that God gave them every day what they needed to survive. And they would go and pick it up and they would eat it. And that's what, what God is offering you too here in this hidden manna is, is eternal life, but it's, it's, it's more than that. The, the idea of the manna is a place where you can go daily to get what you need to be strong spiritually. And, and I hope you see the connection. What he's talking about it is his word. His word is the hidden manna. His word is the way that we stay strong. His word is the way that we recognize these attacks and we face them in our lives. His word is the way that we receive strength through the power of the Holy Spirit. So hidden manna. The next one is a white stone, which is a not guilty verdict. Not guilty verdict. Here we have, I, I got this. These are stones. And, and these would have, these are stones, in case you didn't know that. And one of the things that you might not know is this, is that in Pergamum, in, in the way that they did their justice system, 
that if you had a jury trial, everyone on the jury would be given a black and a white stone. And, and when they heard the trial, and they, they would go around with a bag and they would put a stone in there, either white or, or black. Black meant you were guilty, white meant you were innocent. So when Antipas, remember the guy who was put in the bull, when, when he would have uh, stood before the judge, the judge would have reached in and he would have pulled out a black stone. And the black stone means that you are guilty and that you are sentenced to death. But now, with, the, with these people, as they would have known that, what God is offering them, as they stand before God, as they know that they've been guilty of this self-worship, of moral compromise in their life, that, that Jesus comes to them and says, I have a gift for you. And that is a white stone. A white stone that says, when you stand before God as your judge, you are not guilty. You are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you have that not guilty verdict as you stand before God. And what's interesting about these stones is on them, on the white ones, are written uh, different Hebrew words. All of these mean uh, the equivalent of innocent, not guilty, that type of, of stuff. So that's what the stone literally means is not guilty. But also what God promises you is a name that's written on there. And so a new name is the third thing, a new name, which means a new identity. A new identity. So no longer Dan Salofra, the one who has sinned, the, the one who looks at his past and, and should be ashamed of what he's done. But now I have a new identity, and so do you. And this identity is child of God, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That is who I am. Not guilty as I stand before God, as I face him in the judgment. And it reminds me, and it, and it takes me back, and it takes you back to where we started, doesn't it? it? It takes us back to our relationship with Jesus, the simple truth that that Jesus is my Savior, that Jesus went to the cross to pay for my sins, that I have a relationship with God based on Jesus. And, and that's the beauty of it, is no matter where you have come from, no matter how you have fallen, no matter what type of compromises you have made today, 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 Jesus offers you a white stone, a not guilty verdict with a new identity as his child, because you need it if you are going to take on the challenges of, of fighting this battle every day. The final passage we have, which brings us all together, is Romans 6, verse 13. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. And in the blank you can write, Understanding my identity in Christ... Understanding my identity in Christ will help me better understand the purpose of my life. Understanding my identity will help me better understand my purpose. So what does this look like? What does this look like? For a politician, it would be to go back to the beginning. 
of where I started. What was I trying to accomplish by, by serving my community, my city, my state, my country? Am I doing that? For a seminary student, it was how do I go back to, to what it was, my, my relationship with Jesus and, and wanting to, to, to share him. What is this going to look like in my life? What's it going to look like in my marriage? When I go back to my vows and, and what I promised my spouse and how I'm going to live, what does it look like in my job? When I remembered this is why I wanted to do this in the first place. And what does it look like for me as a child of God? At times when I've drifted, what does it mean though to me today? Where do I take, as, as we've already looked at, the next step of where we go from here? You have a white stone with a new name. You have hidden manna. Those are the promises from God. So, so as you go here, from here today, remember that you do have eternal life. That you do have the word of God to strengthen you along the way. That you have these promises of, of what's going to happen in the future one day when you meet your God. And now until that day, live for him with your new identity, with your purpose of serving him. If you're still looking for ideas after the service today, you can go to hashtag church. Go over there and say, you know what? Could you guys help me? Maybe, maybe find the next step for me here at Crosswalk or, or maybe what I should do with, with either a, a group or maybe it's part of ministry or, or whatever it is. Maybe it's taking time to talk to your spouse. Tell them how much you love them. Maybe it's time to talk to your children, to parents, whoever it is. But know that you are not going alone. Christ's promises are going with you and they will strengthen you. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for the promises that you made to the church in Pergamum. And Lord, they went through uh, the fire. They went through so much difficulty. And, and then you helped them not only to, to face those frontal attacks, but also these attacks that came from the side as well. And now, Lord, you ask that, we ask that you would help us do the same. Please make us aware of the self-worship that we are so prone to. Help us to repent of sin, to confess it to you, to confess it to others, and turn to you for forgiveness. And now help us as, as we go from here to, to show our faith in you and to live un, uncompromised lives in service to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now some closing thoughts from Pastor Dan. The last verse that we had talked about is... Uh, not being instruments of wickedness, but rather to give ourselves to the Lord. And it makes me think of these instruments. Uh, Jonathan kind of jokes with me, like yesterday at Trunk or Treat when I was walking around and he came and was offering me his guitar. Uh, if, if that instrument is in my hands, it is useless and, and, even, and annoying. Uh, but, when, but when that instrument is put in Jonathan's hands, it is a, a thing of beauty and a thing of praise to God. And so that's, that's what the Lord is offering us. Put ourselves as an instrument in his hands and, and see the beautiful things that he does with us in our lives. And as you go, go with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. God bless your day. And again, if you're interested in hashtag church, you can go out uh, and register on the patio.
Thanks.